John chapter 4, verse 19 through verse 23, the Bible says, The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you are a prophet. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that Jerusalem is the place where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know. For salvation is from the Jews, but the hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking such people to worship Him. This past week, as I've taken the opportunity to spend time with my family, I have been gripped by the first part of John 4.23. In Jesus' response to the Samaritan woman, he says, The hour is coming and is now here when true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and in truth. I don't know if you've ever considered what it means to worship in spirit and truth, but as I've spent time in this, as I've spent time looking at what it means to worship in spirit and in truth, the overwhelming theme that I keep coming back to, that I keep being directed to, is that everything in the life of a believer is pointing towards being able to worship authentically and genuinely. Christians who don't enjoy worship will be starkly surprised when they come into eternity. All that we will do in heaven is worship. All that we should do on earth now is worship. Jesus says the hour is coming and is now here. This morning we invite ourselves to... We invite ourselves boldly to come together that we might worship. We're invited and we're encouraged to come and take part in this hour where worship will be the central part of everything that we do. The hour is coming. If you haven't been here for the preceding sermons that go along with the, the sermon series that we began for our Christmas time, I'd invite you to go back and to look at the resources that are published on our church website where you'll find we've already looked at this concept of the hour, which is thematic in John's gospel, as he talks about the hour that Christ is coming into the world, his hour that he's pointing towards, the hour that comes, and the hour that's not just coming, but for us is already here because Jesus is personally present in the church. His leadership is present in the church. The hour is coming, joyful and triumphant, that we can come and adore him. Born the king of angels, Christ the Lord. The truth is, those who misunderstand worship are missing the central point of what it means to be a Christian because we were saved that we would be able to worship God. The celebration of Christmas for the church is much more than a birthday party for the founder of our faith. None other than God himself, after all, Jesus existed before he was born on earth. Christmas is a celebration of what has come into the world because of him, namely the ability to worship in spirit and in truth through his illumination of the truth, by his grace through the spirit, with regenerated life within us, with all 
that we have and all that we are. This morning, we'll finish out John's prologue in John chapter 1. I'd invite you to turn in your Bibles with me there now. John chapter 1, our text comes from verse 14, and I'll read all the way through verse 18. We find the climax of the Christmas story right here at the end of the introduction to John's gospel account. But first, let us pray that we would be ready to receive the word as it is preached. Father in heaven, we come to you earnestly seeking to know you better, to grow in you and to grow in our faith. Lord, we pray this morning that you would be with us who are gathered this morning, that you would be worshiped and glorified in all that we do as we listen to this sermon, as we preach this sermon. God, that you would be the one that our mind is fixed on. Lord, we pray that as we read your word, that it would be illuminated to our heart, that we would be able to understand it. Lord, we pray with the psalmist. Open the eyes of my heart, Lord, that I may be able to behold the amazing truth found in your law. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. The Bible says, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. We have seen his glory, glory as the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. John bore witness about him and cried out, this was he of whom I said, he who comes after me ranks before me because he was before me. For from his fullness we have received grace upon grace. For the law was given through Moses. Grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. No one has ever seen God, the only God who is at the Father's side. He has made him known. This morning I have three quick things that you should add to Christmas. I say add because this evening when you're gathered with your family and you're eating your Christmas dinners and nobody remembers what the preacher said this morning, you can just remember that I need to add the most important ingredient to Christmas at, that, that, is, that, that I need. And that is that Christ came first, he appeared, that he displayed, and that he declares. Let's begin looking at Christ's appearance. Verse 14 says, And the Word became flesh. This is, this morning, perhaps the most important part of John's prologue. It is, I call it the climax, because we see it, John zooming in to what is taking place with the advent of our Savior. In John 1.1, he begins, The Word was. Remember, that's in the imperfect tense, which means that he was, which means it happened in the past. It's continually happening. It's not descriptive of when it happened because it's eternally happening. He was. The word was with God. The word was God. And then zooming in in verse 14, John writes, the word became no longer in the imperfect tense, but happening in a moment, at a particular moment in time, at a particular minute, at a particular second, at a particular millisecond, the God who created everything came into his very own creation. This is a personal exchange. The, this is not just climactic, but it is, 
generating within us the, the idea and giving us the insight of the moment that the Savior became flesh. In fact, even in the Greek, the word used for flesh, this is quite crude to say that in the word became flesh, the word, uh, oh, I can't remember the word for flesh. Sucrose? Not sucrose, that's sugar in Latin. Uh, anyways, sarcos, the word became flesh. It's crude. It's giving us this concept that Jesus' humanity can't be separated, but it's helping us to understand that in his humanity, he's not just perfectly God, but that he's completely and wholly also human. Christians wrestle with this, and there's even many different forms of heresy today that would deny the humanity of Christ. That we would focus so much on his deity that we would put him outside of our reach, outside of our approach. That we would forget that the Savior did not come into this world. That the divine did not enter into this world in some sort of non-physical manifestation of who God was. But that he literally came to dwell in the sarcos, in the flesh. We talk about the incarnation, the doctrine of incarnation. This is what we are celebrating at Christmas. If you've ever needed help understanding what incarnation means, remember when you're walking down the grocery aisle and you see carne asada cut up before you. Carne means meat. To become incarnate means to become in meat, to come in flesh. He had a physical body. Not only that, but he suffers everything in this world perfectly that he would be able to identify with all of his people. Christ comes into this world that he might appear. He comes to dwell among us. This is personal. Notice that John doesn't write that the word became flesh and he dwelt among humanity. But he uses an inclusive word, an inclusive pronoun to say us. This is the first person plural. This includes us, you and me. Today, Christ comes to dwell among us. The moment in history, the particular time that he became flesh, he dwelt. Not with some abstract group of people but with real human beings, with real emotions, people living real lives. He comes and he dwells, not temporarily. He, even his, in his ascension, he has not left us, but he has sent us the counselor to comfort us that we might know that Christ is here now, that the Holy Spirit works through the church under the lordship of none other than the Son to glorify none other than the Father. Christ dwelling among humanity isn't sufficient. John makes us know he is among us. He came to his creation. There is a warning here for Christians that would neglect this world. Listen to me. Christ came none, to none other than his own creation. He promises not just to redeem those who are called unto his name, not just to seek and to find the lost, but he promises to give us a new world. Christ loves his creation. There's a warning here for Christians that would make their spiritual life separate from all that they are. In fact, I would say that is not true worship. We cannot be Christians on Sunday and live in the world Monday through Saturday. 
We cannot worship at a morning service from 10 o'clock to 10.45. Our worship must be all-encompassing in all that we are and everything that we are in this world. In fact, everything that we do in a worship service like this should be an overflow. It should be an overflow of all of the worship that takes place throughout the rest of our week, throughout the rest of our lives. We cannot view creation as some consumable environment. The world that we live in isn't something that's simply perishable and wasting away. While some would say, what does it matter? God's going to create a new earth after all. Don't you see what creation is? It is the first glimpse of God declaring his glory to us. Paul writes in Romans chapter 1, this very thing, that all things that can be known about God have been revealed since the very beginning in creation because God's creation is declaring his glory. While natural theology falls short in way of giving us true insight into who God is, it does not fall short in the fact that in the life of the Christian, in the life of the redeemed, in those who have had the veil and darkness of sin lifted over their eyes, that we are able to behold all the glories of creation that God has put before us in a way never seen with unregenerate eyes. We cannot separate in some sort of humanistic hedonism an approach to spirituality that separates our spiritual worship from our day-to-day lives. Spirit-filled, true worship comes from the overflow. It is among us that we worship so that we, when the church gathers, He is glorified. The Word became flesh. I mentioned that natural theology falls short. What is the purpose of Christ's advent? Why is it impossible for us to see the perfect understanding of God's glory simply through creation? Because it is marred by the consequences of sin in this world. Christ became flesh as the ultimate, as the final, as the perfect, as the ultimate revelation of God's glory. The molder of the mountains, the painter of the plains, came to dwell on earth in his creation as though an artist had stepped into their own production. Glory. Nothing but glory. The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as the only Son from the Father. This phrase, the only Son, it's how the ESV translates it. I believe the King James still says begotten there. And actually, I think that's a better word, begotten, because it gives us the picture that, uh, of Abraham at the very beginning of the Bible when God chooses his holy nation. Abraham brings his only begotten son to be the sacrifice to glorify God. Hebrews chapter 11 gives, or chapter 12 gives us that very, no, it is chapter 11. Chapter 11, verse 17, that Abraham gave his only begotten son. What this means here is not that Christ is the only son of God. In fact, that's even misleading as we understand God as co-equal in the Trinity. What this tells us is that he is loved, that he is unique, that he's one of a kind. He is the son of God.
He is the glory of the Father appearing in the flesh, not simply manifesting, appearing in the flesh before all of creation. Indeed, there is none like him. Christ appeared. But he also displayed. This is the purpose of the advent that we would add. That we would see what was displayed in Christ. God's glory displayed. Consider for a moment how imperfect God's glory is declared in my life and in your life. Even in our sanctification and our growing closer to Christ, we fall short of demonstrating the perfect true light. Even John, the, the, the Baptist, the prophet who came before Christ, was wise enough to proclaim that the one who comes after him is, is ranked before him because he was before him, even though John was actually older. He came before him because he existed before the creation of the world. It was through him that all things were created and all things were formed that the Son would come and dwell in his creation. His glory is perfectly described and displayed for all people in his appearing. Up until this point in history, God's glory had been limited, even through his special interventions throughout history for the people of Israel. In Exodus 16, verse 10, we see a glimpse of, of the glory that God displayed for the people of Israel. When Aaron was speaking to the whole Israelite community, they looked toward the desert, and there was the glory of the Lord appearing in a cloud. Exodus 24, verses 16 and 17, the glory of the Lord settled on Mount Sinai. For six days the cloud was covered, the cloud covered the mountain. And on the seventh day, the Lord called to Moses from within the cloud. To the Israelites, the glory of the Lord looked like a consuming fire on top of the mountain. Exodus verse, chapter 40, verse 34. Then the cloud covered the tent of meeting and the glory of the Lord filled the tabernacle. God's glory, even when appearing in the Old Testament, is veiled. It's covered up. It's shrouded with a cloud, with a fire. It's never perfectly displayed like it is in the advent of none other than Jesus Christ, the Savior of the whole world. His glory comes into this world that true worshipers would be able to gather and worship Him, not only in spirit, but in truth taking away all that was in the Old Testament to say that we should worship in Jerusalem or that we should worship in Samaria, that we should worship. It doesn't matter where God is present in everything, in all of creation. We worship him in our hearts, in spirit and in truth. And we're called and given the ability to do this because Christ came, because he displayed this glory for us. For us. He did this that we could see clearly full truth and grace. The only Son of the Father displays glory as full grace and truth. That's the end of verse 14. He does this in demonstrating for us his compassion. He demonstrates for us his uncalculated love. He demonstrates and displays his perfect revelation of the glory of God. 
He fulfills all of the law of Moses, not in living it out perfectly, but in becoming the substitution needed in place of every man's penalty. I do not say that my intention in saying that is not to say that Christ had any sin. Certainly, he fulfilled the law of Moses perfectly in his righteous life. He lived without sin. But in the ultimate fulfillment of the law of Moses, he becomes the lamb that is sacrificed on behalf of all who would put their faith in him. On Calvary, on the cross, he becomes the substitution of payment that is owed on behalf of all of creation, marred by sinfulness, unable to see the full glories of God. Not only is he this full, displaying, radiant, perfect light of truth that gives us understanding into all things, but he is the substitution on behalf of sinners. He gives us justification. He makes us right with God. When we get to heaven, the only way anyone will be allowed in, we will not say, because God, you have forgiven me for my sins. We will say, God, because my sins have been paid. I'm able to stand righteous before you because my sins have been paid. No one has ever seen God. But Jesus has made him known because he radiates the glory of God as a member of the divine trinity. Now there's two D's in ad. So as you're remembering what the advent is for, you can remember not only that Christ came and that he appeared, that he displayed, but that he came and he declared. From the fullness of of God, we have received grace upon grace. From his fullness, we have received grace upon grace. That's verse 16. From Jesus' fullness, from his completeness, from his perfect revelation displayed and disclosed, Jesus is able to say, Look to me, follow me, trust me, for I am the way, the truth, and the life. None come to the Father except through me. This was the message that John was proclaiming in the wilderness as he prepared the way for a backslidden Israel who needed to come back to their faith. This is the message that Christ has for his church today as we read Revelation chapter 2 and chapter 3. This is the message that Christ is giving to his people. Look to me. He gives us grace upon grace. What an interesting little phrase. Grace upon grace. I think it would have been sufficient to say grace. I'm happy with grace. Ephesians 2.8, Paul writes, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not of your own works, but a gift of God not a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which he prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. I'm happy with grace. John writes, from the fullness of Christ, we received grace upon grace. 
Well, isn't this the message of worship after all? I said that worship should be overflowing. Isn't this a picture of Christ? grace towards us, of God's grace towards his chosen? Isn't this a picture of the grace afforded to the church? Not that we have grace enough to cover our sins for today, but as we live our lives, continually pursuing God, seeking to know him more, when we fail, his grace abounds even more. It's like an overfilled cup sitting on the kitchen counter that you can't lift. So you lean down to sip the liquid from the rim so that you can pull the cup up. But as you drink from it, it continually fills up more. It's overflowing. No matter how stable my hand is, God's grace pours out among us. His grace is all about us. It's all about the life of the church. Grace, unmerited, undeserved favor. This isn't mercy. This isn't simply, well, you don't deserve this. This is a gift. This is a gift given to the world that we would know him. Grace, a gift without any cause. We've been granted favor with God. As I read the Gospels and I consider the moment that Christ came into this world, one of the things that stands out in my mind is the moment at which the angel Gabriel appeared before Mother Mary and said to her, Rejoice. You are highly favored in the eyes of the Lord. Indeed, Mary is favored in the eyes of the Lord to be the mother, the one who would bring God into creation. You are more favored than Mary. This morning, if you know Christ as your Savior, if you believe that he paid the penalty for your sin, if you confess your sin, if you believe in him, if you have new life and experience true abundant grace and worship overflowing in your life as a consequence, you are more blessed than the mother of God. We have been granted favor with God. The mid-17th century Puritan Jonathan Edwards wrote, "'Tis a greater blessedness to have a spiritual communion with God and to have a saving relationship with Him by the instances of His Spirit and by the exercises of true devotion than it is to converse with God externally, to see the visible representation and manifestation, so His presence and glory, and to hear His voice with the bodily ears as Moses did. For in this spiritual relationship, the soul is nigh unto and hath more a particular portion than in any external relationship. Tis more blessed to be spiritually related to Jesus Christ, to be his disciples, his brethren, and the members than it is to stand in the nearest temporal relation than to be his brother or his mother. Jonathan Edwards was saying in that quotation this. 
He's pointing out the fact that in any given relationship, when you converse with someone, when you spend time with someone, even to be close with someone such as a mother and their own child or a brother and their own sibling, to be with them, you can never know the heart of that person perfectly. Even spouses cannot know perfectly everything that is going on in the heart and in the mind of the person they love. Even in perfect transparency and openness, we cannot perfectly know everything that is happening with everyone who is involved in our lives. But when you have a saving relationship, a spiritual communion, you not only are promised to have closer communion than brothers and sisters, parents and children, but you are promised to be given a new heart. Your communion with God is more blessed today even than in the Advent, even than with Mother Mary, even with all of the disciples, because we claim to have the complete revelation of God's Word given to us. A new spirit placed inside of us, a heart of stone pulled out of us and replaced with a heart of flesh. We're able to worship God in closer communion than all of these people for none, no reason other than this, that our heart belongs to Him. The reason we celebrate Christmas, I said in my introduction, is not because it's a birthday party. We're able to celebrate Christmas because we're able to worship. There's nothing we could neglect more then this one truth that worship holds it all together. The church has the ability to come alive not because of our own fervor, because we can get ourselves worked up, not because the word of God is so wonderful when it's read, but because the heart of God is placed inside of us, that we are led by the Spirit as individuals coming together to commune in a spiritual way with the Creator of everything, that as we sing songs, that He would receive all praise, not just with our body and with our actions, not as external lip service, but as a result of Him being glorified in us. This is what we have to celebrate this morning. As we leave this place this morning and we go back to celebrate with our families or with our friends, this is the prayer that I have for you. That your worship will not cease. That we will come together again as a church on January 1st. That God will be glorified. That we will sing loudly. That we will come ready to hear the word of God proclaimed. That we would not relegate worship to a medial task on our calendars, but that we would appreciate all that has been added to our lives with the revelation of God's declaration. Father in heaven, we love you. We praise you for all that you are. God, we thank you for what you've given us and we pray that you would be glorified this morning and every morning after this in our lives. In Jesus' precious name we pray. Amen.